Good morning, Urban Village Church, Wicker Park. Uh, my name is Emily McGinley, and I have um, the great joy of uh, joining you in um, worship and figuring out what it is that we're doing as people of faith. Um, I actually come to you uh, as the pastor from um, Hyde Park Woodlawn, and I have to tell you that uh, I bring greetings from the HP Dovers. They are um, so glad to, to hear about the exciting things that are going to be happening um, with uh, um, uh, Pastor Hannah joining in a couple of months and just all the opportunities and possibilities that come from that. So um, one kind of just little thing that I wanted to say before I, uh, before I pray us in, um, I did not, I kind of like didn't really think things through exactly in that um, because this is a two-service uh, site, I am actually starting a Bible study this week at 1230 in Hyde Park Woodland. So I will have to kind of jet out um, during the offering. Um, so that's why you won't see me after service. Um, but know that uh, that I will be taking communion with you in spirit um, as I drive uh, back to Hyde Park Woodland. So please join me in a word of prayer as we begin. God, thank you so much for this time to um, set aside an opportunity to connect with you, to engage with you in a deeper way open our hearts and minds to hear what it is that you have to say to us, startle us with your word. We invite your spirit into the space of our hearts and minds to do what it, only it can do um, and transform us for deeper life and possibility um, to live those lives and be those people that you've created and called us to be so long ago. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, just a couple of years ago when I would plan a trip to the airport, uh, maybe some of you have this experience the night before, and it sounds like completely antiquated nowadays, but the night before I would call a taxi company and order a cab for the next morning, um, and then I would get picked up, right? Did anyone used to do this? Okay, so I, I'm the oldest one here, apparently. Um, so uh, these days, of course, I don't call the night before. I wait, you know, what, 10 minutes before it's about time to leave. I pick up my phone and... Yeah, I call Uber or call, I don't know, like I summon Uber um, or Lyft uh, to come pick me up, right? So I did that actually just a couple of weeks ago as I traveled to San Jose um, for a family wedding. And I was staying with my friend whose home is kind of deep in the heart of Silicon Valley where, you know, tons of startups are happening and everything. And one of the things that we talked about was that there's this trend among startups um, to become like disruptors, right? And they do this through all kinds of approaches. Mobile phones disrupted landlines. Right? Streaming disrupted network television. Um, food, uh, food trucks uh, disrupted restaurants and fast food joints. Um, so disrupted, disruption can be really helpful in that it can make markets leaner and more effective. Um, and Uber, of course, is a disruptor in the transportation business, especially the taxi transportation business. They disrupt it by making it really easy for people to become um, Drivers and riders. Do we have anyone in here who's ever been a rider or a driver for Uber? It's like a good portion of you. Um, and so uh, that's just about everyone here. And um, so Uber is this disruptor, and they are really good at um, having been disrupting the taxi industry from um, both ends, right, from drivers to riders. And um, they've been wildly successful at infiltrating markets and growing um, really quickly, except, except when they went to Europe. In Europe, and ironically, in Germany, Uber um, failed miserably, right? Their estimated loss is at $62.5 billion in Europe. They eventually pulled out. Um, so why? Well, basically, Europeans thought Uber as a company was really pushy 
and offensive, which actually a lot of people in the US think about Uber as a company as well. But the difference was that people were not willing to set aside um, uh, convenience and a good deal, uh, or sorry, willing to set, set that aside in, in a favor of um, convenience and a good deal. So, and in Germany in particular, uh, both drivers and riders just did not like the way that Uber was trying to undermine government regulations that were like for the safety of the people and for the um, good of uh, their kind of their economy. So they didn't like the aggressive strategies that Uber um, used to undermine businesses and even worker rights. Um, and for Germans in particular, it disregarded their sense of the common good. Um, and so if your core value is just pure profits, right, from kind of a purely capitalistic perspective, regardless of its social impact, Uber wins, hands down. I mean, they're like wildly successful, right? But if your core value is com the common good, Uber might be a little bit problematic. And so um, kind of to contrast that, there's this other business that I heard about, uh, Gravity Payments, which I'm not sure if anyone here has heard of. Um, they're located in my hometown of Seattle, Washington. Um, and uh, you may have heard about, uh, if you haven't heard of the company, you may have heard about a decision that their CEO um, and founder, Dan Price, uh, made. Um, after reading a study about how much money really people needed in order to um, experience happiness and kind of a sense of stability and security, um, he decided that he was going to set everyone in the company, 120 people in all, including himself, um, at the same salary of $70,000 a year. And in his decision, Dan Price ended up becoming a disruptor of wage, um, wages. He figured that maybe there would be some free publicity and um, you know, that kind of thing, but he really did not anticipate the level of backlash and pushback that he would get um, from folks. A couple of um, his employees left the company because they felt like it wasn't fair. They felt like they were putting in higher level kind of skill and effort into the company and did not like the idea of people at the bottom making the same amount as them. Um, his brother, who owns 30% of the company, filed a lawsuit against him. Um, other small business owners resented him because uh, they thought that he was, you know, trying to sort of, you know, you know, I don't know, make them look bad or something. Um, and then even like Rush Limbaugh, someone he had actually grown up listening to um, in his conservative Christian homeschooled environment, um, accused him of having a socialist agenda. So, but even with this though, there were plenty of folks who were excited about this, right? He lost some clients, but he actually gained even more. Um, he received thousands of resumes, um, talk shows, wanted to interview him. Um, Harvard business professors flew out to conduct a case study, and third graders even wrote him thank you notes. Um, and, but, you know, and because of his decision, um, some of his employees felt like they could finally start a family. Um, others were able to purchase a home, and even um, one person uh, shared about how they, uh, they were, felt like they were finally able to fly home to visit their family because their family lived so far away that they could afford the plane ticket. For Price, he just wanted to improve the quality of life of his employees and kind of also like inject a powerful idea into society, right? Um, maybe you could run a business and also still commit to the well-being of your employees and the community at large. Why w so why would you commit to the well-being of your community? Maybe you're a good person, you grew up in a place um, in a home uh, fa family uh, value system where something like that was just uh, really a core value. Uh, maybe you're really idealistic and you're like, I'm gonna make the world a better place, right? Um, or maybe you, know, you, you love your community and you just wanna see it flourish, right? But what if, what if you hate your community? 
What if you feel hopeless because of your community? What if you don't want to be a good person and you would rather just kind of curl up and watch the world burn around you? Well, in a way, that's what's going on in this passage for this morning. That's the kind of people that the prophet Jeremiah is writing to in our passage for this morning. So let me back up and give you the full picture. Um, These people are in exile, and that whole list that um, Kyle very impressively read of the names um, is basically when you see that in scripture, that's like setting the political social landscape of like what's going on. So all of those are like names of political leaders, power players who have done something, right? So you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper. Well, so these um, people who Jeremiah is writing to are are people in exile. They've been ripped from their homes and resettled in Babylon after being conquered um, by the Babylonian um, Empire. Um, And so they've been, they're, uh, in the scripture, it's like artisans and um, a couple of like other kind of skilled labor type of people, people, technological labor at that time, right, Um, who have been brain drained essentially from Jerusalem to add to the Babylonian um, economy and um, kind of technological development. And so they've been relocated, exiled to the central city of their conqueror, and they are just eager for this whole thing to be over, right, sort of captive refugee status to be done and to return to life as it was. And and there were were like prophets who were saying, yeah, it's going to happen. You know, God is, God is going to bring you back. It's gonna, you're going to get back to life as usual. You know, just hang in there. And who could blame them for wanting to pretend like they wouldn't need to have to, like, invest in sturdy furniture or hang pictures on their walls? Who could blame them for wanting to believe what they were being told, right? Any day now, we'll be back in good old Jerusalem. Any day. Just wait it out. But days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, and still they are refusing to unpack their suitcases. They're still trying to hold on to this um, idea. Any day now, right? Any day now, they're saying to each other. And so, but we see, what we see in the passage that Jeremiah, this letter that Jeremiah is writing to them, um, is that he, he mentions that elders are dying. Like the ones who held the memory of the homeland, the ones who were sort of like the, the, um, the link, right? Um, to way, the way things used to be. They're dying, and it's becoming painfully clear that returning home is not going to happen anytime soon. And so they can feel their hope just draining away. If they can't go home, then what? So when people are displaced, they usually think that they have two options, assimilate or ghettoize. Um, in my own experience as an Asian American, um, uh, as an Asian American, what I've sort of observed of um, Asian American economic or political refugees, um, I've seen sort of both scenarios play out of assimilation and ghettoizing. On one hand, you have someone who's like my mom, um, I'm biracial, my mom's Chinese, um, who refused to speak Chinese to us and frowned on any occasion that we might bring home a friend who was not white. Um, and would studiously kind of ignore or give like very short one-word answers to any questions that we might have about our own ethnic identity. Um, She wanted us to assimilate. She wanted us, uh, in other words, to erase our identity. And this is essentially actually um, what early immigrants from Europe did um, to create and build the project of white American identity, right? But that's another sermon for another time. Um, on the other hand, though, you have, so you have assimilation, and then on the other hand, you have um, kind of very ethnic-specific communities. You see them all over the country um, where uh, 
folks who speak the same language or a similar language or have, have a shared kind of ethnic identity um, kind of build their own community, right? So there's like Chinatown, Koreatown, whatever. Um, and in these communities, you can get your, uh, your specific language newspaper. You can um, go to a doctor who speaks your language. You can um, buy your home from a real estate agent who speaks your language. You could even start your own business um, that only provides services for um, uh, folks just like in your own ethnic um, identity and, and cultural space. And you know, I, I'm not like hating on those communities that much because they, they serve a purpose. Like they're really important, um, particularly for immigrants, first generation folks who, um, who need that space to survive, to figure out how do I get started in this new world? How do I have my own identity affirmed in a kind of broader culture that um, tries to diminish my um, identity? So th these, the, and, and to sort of stay in touch with like my people, right? Um, and so those, the communities are important, but they also um, can serve to prevent people from venturing out as well, right? And so there, it's mainly these two kind of binaries of like totally like, you know, dissolve yourself into um, broader culture or just like huddle in. I mean, I think sort of like suburbs are sort of a version of that as well, um, where people kind of like, who are like each other just want to sort of build their their gated communities and be with one another and not have to like deal with the other stuff. Um, so it's a similar kind of concept. And so, you know, you have these binaries, assimilate or ghettoize. Um, and these are the options that, um, that the people, uh, uh, the, the Jews in exile in Babylon thought that they had before them. They're like, which one do I do, right? But so here's what God's, God is saying through Jeremiah. These are actually not your only options. There is a third way. There's another way. There's a way to stay alive in both your identity and um, still be part of the broader community um, that you exist in. But it actually might be the hardest of the, of the three. Disrupt Babylon. Disrupt Babylon. Disrupt the culture. Disrupt the system. Disrupt society. Disrupt the way things are done. So I became a Christian at a non-denominational evangelical Bible church, which I feel like says it all. Um, there are some very good things, actually, that I got out of um, that from being that, for having that as my foundation of faith. And there are some really harmful things, of course, that um, later on I had to sort of undo and deconstruct and, and heal from and to become a more whole person. But one, and so one of these harmful ideas was that um, this world is just temporary. And that what I was really waiting for was the world to come. Heaven, the return of Jesus, blah, 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 right? And in one way, I think that this is true, because I do, I mean, scripture bears witness to that. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's not in the way that I was taught, that, like, therefore, this life didn't matter, right? That um, trying all that hard in this world is a waste of time and energy, and I should just really, like, focus on the next and, and not invest in this world. I mean, that's why you sometimes get some really, like, wonky, um, like, eco-environmental like eco kind of perspective as, as well from people who come from that world view. Um, but anyway, so this passage actually speaks directly against that way of thinking. Um, because actually what God is telling the people to do is to, is to not hunker down and just wait it out till you know, Jesus returns, although this is the Old Testament. Um, but God is telling the people, dig in. Dig deep. Carve out a space that isn't just to survive, but to thrive. But, and here's the hardest thing, um, not just so that your people can thrive, um, but so that the city you live in, the place of your oppression, will thrive too. And that can be a really difficult, bitter pill to swallow. 
But, you know, because here's the secret sauce recipe, when you embed yourself in a place, God is basically saying, you can't help but change it, right? So when you get out of that space and you start to infiltrate, essentially, um, that Babylon changes, right? So we're in this series about work and faith, and we're asking this question, how do I flourish and find joy in my work? Well, um, whether you're doing what you want to be doing or you're kind of waiting for something better to come along, um, or you know whether you love your workplace or you're trying to find a job so you can like even have a workplace, um, a place to begin is uh, by doing what God told those exiles to do um, in Babylon. Disrupt Babylon. Disrupt Babylon. Instead of allowing yourself to be consumed by your work or your workplace values, instead of being carried along by the currents of um, the dominant narrative or culture, disrupt Babylon. Change it. Disrupt Babylon. So how do we do that? Well, um, the first, I would say, is to be present. So in the norms in U.S. American culture, um, it's that you're, you know, like, this, there's this sort of accepted idea that you're going to move around a lot for work, that wherever kind of your job takes you, you'll go. Um, how many people here have moved for work? Okay, so like a good handful of you. How many people are sort of like contemplating the possibility of having to move because of work? Any folks here? Okay, so a small, smaller group. Um, so uh, I read about like a year and a half ago that um, the average stay of a resident in Wicker Park is six months. Six months. How can you disrupt anything if you are constantly being disrupted, right? How can you disrupt anything if you are being disrupted all the time? So life dictates things, it's true, right? So there are some things that are out of your control, but you do too. You have choices. When you stay present and choose to commit, that's when you can begin to make a difference. Our God is one of solidarity and commitment. God is with us. God journeys with us. God walks with us. And so we are called in a lot of ways to be that same kind of person, um, to counteract these cultural norms, that it's okay to sort of uproot and go around um, to different places in search of, um, not necessarily in search of better work, but just kind of to have a sort of cavalier idea about what community is and that um, it that you're moving around doesn't um, impact things. In fact, perpetual transience is a huge factor in um, the forces, the destructive forces of gentrification, right? So maybe some of you actually have moved here because of gentrification. This is not like your time to feel guilty. Um, This is your opportunity to be able to actively counteract the destructive forces of gentrification by committing to stay in a neighborhood and invest joyfully, which is the next piece, into the neighborhood that you're a part of. And because when you choose to say, even if, say, you're a student and your lease on life here is like two years, you know, who knows after that, right? You can still invest. And you can invest joyfully, right? So um, you can invest in your community by planting gardens, right? That's what, um, that's what scripture says. Plant gardens. Create spaces where life can thrive. Build houses, places where people can gather and share food and relationship together. I mean, be a host or be part of a, um, a life group, just like uh, what we heard about earlier with the gospel in um, city life group, right? Take that old camping model, right, where uh, about, you know, leave a place uh, in better shape than, uh, than when you arrived and kind of apply that here. Invest joyfully. But sometimes then what that means, 
when you're investing is that you have to also engage critically. So God didn't tell the exiles um, to kind of leave behind the lens that they had and, um, and kind of forget that, you know, that experience. But God was actually saying, bring that with you um, to Babylon and change Babylon. Change the way that they had done things. Bring that experience that you have, that lens, that critical lens of the experience of being exiled and begin to change Babylon. Do the hard work of hearing voices that get stifled. Or maybe if yours is one of the voices that gets stifled, make sure that it gets heard, right? Examine the air you breathe and the waters that you swim in, whether it's educating yourself on redlining policies um, in Chicago. And I actually, this is a couple years ago, I had um, my hair cut by someone um, in Chicago and I was talking about redlining and this person was like, you're lying. And I was like, Google it. I'm serious, just Google redlining Chicago. They could not believe that redlining happened. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. Um, so educate yourself on the history of the city because when you, when you live in uh, perpetual kind of um, amnesia, sort of his, you know, ahistorical kind of reality, then you also begin to inadvertently perpetuate some of those injustices as well. So anyway, um, whether it's putting yourself, uh, so whether it's educating yourself or um, even putting yourself in situations or communities or places where your own worldview is challenged, maybe being here is a little bit of that for you, right? Um, or taking the time to visit with your uh, local representatives on issues like tax reform or police accountability or any of the many issues that we are um, partnering with the Community Renewal Society on. Um, that's another way. But maybe most challenging of all, I think, is sometimes can be critically engaging your own lens, right? Kind of turning the mirror back on yourself and sort of becoming aware of, like, what are my assumptions? Um, becoming aware of, like, how my actions impact other people, um, how my way of doing life might counteract um, someone else's way of doing life in ways that are harmful, um, unintentionally so, but yet all the same, harmful. So beginning to, to um, engage yourself critically as well. That's actually the work of discipleship, right, is, like, to do this work inside so that way we can be more fully that person God created us to be. So when we do that hard work, um, we have then all the things that we need in order to be able to begin to witness faithfully. So yesterday um, was our winter UVC leadership conference, and during a, leader, a session about leadership development led by Jonah Holm, um, uh, the question was raised about, you know, kind of like why people were there, and um, two different people, Paul Ramoy, is he here? I'm totally calling him out because he wasn't at the first service either, so feel free to shame him in positive ways. Um, but Paul, uh, Paul was there, but he's clearly not here. Um, and uh, Darius James of uh, UBC Andersonville, they both kind of shared, they have different um, uh, uh, vocations that they're um, engaged in, but they both shared how they hoped um, that what they learned in the session might inform the work that they do outside of church. And for me, it was just like really cool to hear that uh, because this is how you begin to like start disrupting Babylon, right? By taking what we talk about and how we do here in this space and in our um, fellowship relationships and other discipleship um, relationships, taking that into um, other spaces of our lives that also need to be disrupted, to inject new thoughts and new ways of doing and new ways of being into other spaces that uh, might not uh, have access to that kind of insight or thinking or orientation to life and, and, um, and community. So be present, invest joyfully, engage critically, and witness faithfully. That's how you disrupt 
Babylon. You may never own your own business or become a TED-worthy, TED-talk-worthy leader in your vocation, um, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a difference for the common good. That doesn't mean you can't add your time, energy, intelligence, and imagination to something that's bigger than you. That's what this project is, right, of, of faith, of, of kingdom building. That doesn't, um, in fact, uh, the question I think then, um, as we begin to think about that, is then to ask yourself, how am I disrupting Babylon? How am I disrupting Babylon? What am I doing to promote the flourishing of life? Not just for me or my friends or my neighborhood, but for the city or the world, kind of the broader world, right? How, what am I doing to promote the flourishing of life? How am I participating in my primary call as a, co as a partner in co-creation with God to help this world flourish in general and specifically in my own kind of work or vocation, vocational context? How am I doing that? It doesn't matter what you do for a living. Whatever you're doing, you don't have to keep your head down and assimilate. You don't have to turn inward and ghettoize. Wherever you are, you can be a force for life. You can faithfully challenge the systems and cultures that you're part of. You can disrupt Babylon. And you can do it in a godly way. How do you do that? Build houses and settle down. Cultivate gardens and eat what they produce. Get married and have children. And this isn't necessarily about, like, everyone has to have kids, right? But it's about um, investing in a future right, that's beyond yourself. So increase in number so that you won't dwindle away. Plan for that seventh generation, right, as our Native American brothers and sisters like to put it. Promote the welfare of the city where God has sent you. Pray for it, because your future depends on it. Be present, invest joyfully, engage critically, and witness faithfully. Your future, our future, God's future, depends on it. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks that you are at work even within us, disrupting us so that we might be uh, fellow co-creators and disruptors in this city for life, for possibility, for hope. Be at work in each of our lives, helping us to do that work, to be present in our communities and in our relationships and our workplaces. Help us to invest joyfully in one another and in ourselves. Help us to engage critically the world around us and our own lenses. Help us to witness faithfully, above all, help us to witness faithfully to your love, to your grace, to your deep, deep soul welcome so that others might know the possibility of doing life in a deeper, truer, and more real way. We pray all of this with gratitude and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we find our greatest hope. Amen. <laughs>